Gang, today we are, and I'm going to wait for the kids, and you'll know why in just a moment to, to kind of clear out, because uh, today we're slated as we go through Advent and track with it, it starts with hope, it goes, last week we talked about love, and this whole series that we're in is called Resetting Christmas, because I don't think there's any believer in America that doesn't know that Christmas needs to be reset, recalculated. It's off Christ, and it's on to everything else, and so we've got to find true north and reset it. So we learned how to reset hope, and we learned how to reset love, and, and it seems ironic at best that we're learning how to reset joy when our whole country is looking at one of the biggest tragedies uh, that we've ever seen in a school shooting, probably the biggest. I, mean, I remember 10, 15 years ago, Columbine happened, and that stuck with us for years because it was just mind-blowing that someone would, some you know, monster, two monsters in, in that case would just go in and take innocent lives. What makes us even worse is that we're talking about little kids, kindergartners, and so the whole nation's grieving, and we're talking about resetting joy. Um, <clears throat> for hundreds of people, parents, siblings, grandparents, and friends of those slain in the Newtown Massacre, there can be no joy right now. Did you hear or see anything, buddy? Yes, I did. I saw some of the bullets going past the hall that I was right next to, and then a teacher pulled me into her classroom. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful to the teacher who, who saved him. Okay, thank you. The teacher, you think the teacher saved his life? She definitely did. He, he had bullets going by him, and she grabbed him and another child so and he... pulled them into a classroom. Down on my knees again tonight I'm hoping this prayer will turn out right See, there is a boy that needs your help I've done all that I can do myself Mother is tired. I'm sure you can understand. Each night as he sleeps, she goes in to hold his hand and she tries not to cry as the tears fill her eyes. Can you? not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. The 
majority of those who died today were children. God who he needs right now. Beautiful little kids between the ages of five and ten years old. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. Among the fallen were also teachers, men and women who devoted their lives to helping our children fulfill their dreams. So our hearts are broken today. All of us can extend a hand to those in need to remind them that we are there for them, that we are praying for them, that the love they felt for those they lost endures not just in their memories, but also in ours. May God bless the memory of the victims. And in the words of Scripture, heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. So let's pray. Father, we lift up the families and the loved ones and the friends of those uh, who are suffering and hurting right now in Newtown, Connecticut, Lord, and what's happened. It's senseless, Lord, and we're in a fallen world where there's not just sin, but there's great evil. Father, these things are completely unexplainable. You know, if we don't know you and we don't know what happened in the fall, then it's completely incomprehensible. Father, the truth is there is no joy and there's no peace apart from you. There may be temporary band-aids and contentment and, and maybe even moments and glimpses of happiness as these people will feel maybe years from now, but to find joy, they'll need to find you, Lord. God, that's my prayer for them. You're the only one that can bring great, great things out of tragedy. Nobody else has that ability. You bring flowers and, and roses out of dirt. And Lord, out of this tragedy, somehow, we don't know how, but you can bring peace and you can bring joy again. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but soon for these people. We pray that somehow through this, many will find you and then find joy that they'll be reunited, reunited with their, their young ones someday in heaven. Help us, Lord, as we try to shift from this somehow to understanding that joy is still possible in Jesus' name. Open the ears and the eyes of our hearts in Jesus' name as we preach from your word about the greatest joy and the greatest gift ever, you giving yourself. Amen. So there's unspeakable pain in the people that suffered this tragedy. But what if I was to tell you, even they, and like I said when I was praying, maybe not today or tomorrow, but even they, can reset joy through Jesus Christ. Some of you are probably thinking, that's almost cold to hear that. I mean, come on, Pastor, they can't. Well, like I said, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but with Jesus Christ, they absolutely can. God's word tells us there may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Dr. Ray Pritchard, he's one of my uh, favorite teachers. In fact, I taught with him up at Word of Life and got to know him a little bit. He says, if there's a single word that describes what Christmas is all about, it's this little three-letter word, joy. Think about some of the Christmas carols that we sing, and I wonder if we even think about it. 
And I, the reason I say I wonder if we even think about it is because I don't think as a culture we understand this word joy. We understand contentment, and we think we understand happiness, but joy is a little bit foreign. It almost seems weird. It almost seems too charismatic. It almost seems giddy. It almost seems that somebody's joyful that they ought to be locked in a padded room, that that's just a little bit over the top. But joy is what the Bible talks about. Joy is the ultimate uh, good feeling and peace and happiness. Think of these songs. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? Good Christian men, rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Rejoice. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. How many songs do we sing that include either rejoice or joy? I guess that's the main word of Christmas. But I was thinking about that, especially after what happened this week. How many of us are coming into this season right now, or even this morning are sitting there right now? I don't know what kind of week you've had. I know what kind of week, even if you had some of the greatest things possible happen to you this week, because of this event, that took it down a notch or 10. So I wonder how many of us feel joyful this morning. Sometimes it's not hard to feel joy when you come to church and you sing the wonderful songs that we sang, in fact, especially when we kicked off the, the second one, the hand jive one that we sang, um, for at least a moment there, I felt joy. For at least a moment there, singing about the Lord and just having fun and lifting up his name, I felt joy. But then the world starts crowding in and all the things that are bothering us and all the things that come because of the fall and everything, they threaten to rob that joy. And it's not always easy to feel joyful. William Willimon, dean of the chapel, uh, at Duke University says that joy can be a challenge to the church. That's sad, isn't it? Joy ought to be the easiest for church-going people, but he says joy can be a challenge, maybe the greatest challenge for the church. Sometimes all we do is talk about the imperatives of life. Do this, don't do that. It's so rule-oriented that you can walk away from church pretty depressed sometimes. You ever feel that way? Sometimes people walk away from church, hopefully not at impact, but sometimes you walk away from church going, I'm just not good enough. Today I learned about a whole lot of other things I don't live up to. I learned about a whole lot of other things I can't seem to do. I learned about some addictions I can't seem to break. So if you're just joining us this morning, I've been in a series entitled Christmas Reset because I, th I really believe that every year it's getting harder and harder to focus it on Jesus. It needs to be reset. This series that we're doing loosely follows Advent which goes hope, love, joy, and peace. And this morning we're going to talk about resetting joy, and I think joy is the trickiest one of all. I don't think it, I know it, because we don't understand it. Like I said, it's a foreign word. It gets confused with its two distant cousins, and what do you think they are? I'm going to get you guys to participate if it's the last thing I do. Where's the coffee at? Pete, is it back there? Can we, just, can we just pour it on their heads or something? Get, get, just get that caffeine going? Bring it in here? It's got two distant cousins, contentment and happiness. But they're different. That's not joy. Joy, I believe, is what we were created to want. Joy, I believe, is what Jesus wants for us to have. If you get contentment, if you get happiness, they're temporary. It's like a drug. You get that and you're going to want more. But if you get joy and you get joy in the Lord... That's different. It's lasting. And in fact, joy is better because joy 
can come in the worst of circumstances. You know who had some of the greatest joy in Scripture? The Apostle Paul. And just off the top of my head, I'm going to tell you some of the things that he went through in his, in his easy, breezy life. Let's see, he was bitten by a poisonous snake. He was shipwrecked three times. He was out for a day and a night in the open sea and didn't drown. He was lashed 39 times with a, you know, that which should kill a man, but he, that was done to him four times. He was stoned, not, not like on marijuana. That's legal now, but it wasn't back then. He was stoned. There were rocks thrown at him, stoned that way, twice, and he's left for dead once. Now, he had to be pretty badly stoned and bloody and beaten for people who hated him and wanted him dead to kind of kick him around and go, okay, listen, we don't want this guy bothering us anymore. Is he dead? He's absolutely dead. Look at him. He's not breathing, and they walk away. He gets up from that, walks away. He was in prison countless times. A lot of the letters that you read in the New Testament, Paul wrote most of it, and he wrote quite a few of them from prison. And there's accounts of Paul in prison chained to other prisoners sometimes they're not believers and whether they like it or not there's going to be a little bit of a concert with paul he's singing hymns come on sing with me and he's witnessing to those people so the joy that paul had it didn't seem to matter whether he was rich or poor in pain or in comfort he was joyful so joy is constant it can always be there even if your body is broken even if you're suffering loss in fact paul saw friends and family and people that came to know the Lord tortured, um, put in the arena and killed, and he still had joy. Now that tells me that even, and I know this is sensitive here, but even the people that are suffering with what we just watched can find joy. The only way they're going to find that is in the bigger picture though, right? The only way they're going to find that is if they know rock solid that this life is a dress rehearsal and it's just temporary that they will be, if they know Jesus Christ, rejoined with their loved ones. That's the only way that it's possible. But joy's tricky. It really, really is. I think it's a shame that we uh, get it confused with contentment and happiness because I think it's settling for mud pies when we can have the real thing, when we can have a, a pumpkin pie, that's my favorite, with whipped cream. It's settling for making mud pies like kids do. It's being satisfied with dumpster diving for food when you have an invitation to the Think of the best restaurant, your favorite restaurant, and you have an invitation to a banquet there, and you go, no, I think I'll dumpster dive for food. That's what it is to settle for happiness and to settle for contentment when you could have what God wants you to have, which is joy. Now, when we talk about the Son of God coming to earth and wrapping around him human flesh and in always growing and learning, just like one of us, one of the words biblical authors use to describe that event more than any other is joy. So I want to take this apart because I really want us to understand it. What makes news joyful? Should I uh, try and get see if you guys know? Because it would require waking up, and that's dangerous for you. Sometimes I get a little shaky with my water, too. <laughs> that might help you wake up. What do you think makes, what, what qualifies something as joyful? I mean, give me some stuff. What's that? Well, when it's good news, yeah. Somebody said winning the lottery. Okay, let me, let me take that. Who said that? Don't want to identify yourself now. Oh, there you are. Maybe, let me, let me say this though. What if you're Donald Trump and you win the Powerball and it's 10 million? Are you joyful or just kind of content? 
I'm going to say you're content. Why? He's going to, that's pocket change. So it all depends, right? So it's, it's, not, it's really more than that. What, when you see people that are completely joyful, think about what, what were they probably like before that? And what are, what are the pre-existing conditions for joy? I was thinking about this week, and I had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of joy with it, actually. A whole lot more than you're having right now. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I'm looking at the things. For one thing, I, I found this. Is the, here's some characteristics. Since I'm getting nothing from you guys. One of them is it seems to be a surprise. You ever notice that? When there's joy, it seems to be unexpected. I mean, you're in a situation where you're just, you're just crushed or, or mournful and you just think it's just hopeless and all of a sudden something happens, maybe a rescue or, 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 or maybe you, you thought you lost your job and then all of a sudden somebody comes with a better job and these things are, and I found about five characteristics that seem to always be present as I searched joy throughout the whole Bible. First of all, it's unexpected. Second of all, it's unlikely. And these aren't in order, they're just all there. Next, it's unworthy. Does that make sense? I mean, joy comes because you feel like, I didn't deserve this. Why me? That brings joy. Unknown. Sometimes it can be something that you didn't even think was possible. That seems to be connected. And then unequal. You've got yourself sitting here and you go, that's sort of like unworthy, but it seems unequal to the situation. So let's take our main verse. This is our verse for today. It's the big one. Luke 2.10. This is too huge to sit down, I think. Why don't you stand up and let me read this one verse and let's dwell on it for just a moment. This is the great joy, maybe the greatest joy verse in all of Scripture. Here it is. And the angel said to them, talking to the shepherds now, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You can be seated. Well, I just found another condition in reading that verse. There's our main verse, and I missed it. A lot of times, joy comes when you're scared. If you've been afraid of something, and then rescue comes, and you realize that you're secure and safe, joy comes from that too, right? Seems like joy follows things that are pretty extreme. Joy is the great contrast emotion, is what I've found. It usually comes unexpectedly as a relief after something painful, fearful, or hopeless. But you know what I found out elicits joy more than anything else? The level of circumstances. Now I'll give you a few, as I told you, I went all through scripture. Let me give you a few of the things that I found. 1 Samuel 11, 8 through 9. There was a group of, of people, a group of Jews that were fighting in their town. The enemy came up against them and it was hopeless. They were going to die. They were about to overtake the town. There was no relief in sight. And so what are they? Scared, right? What else? They are hopeless. And yet when Saul, King Saul, mobilized them at Bezek, he found that there were 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. So 330,000 men he brought. So Saul sent the messengers back to Gebesh Gilead to say, we will rescue you by noontime tomorrow. So what is that? It's pretty good news, isn't it? There was then great joy throughout the town when that message arrived. Why? 
Because there's great contrast there. The circumstances were so bad, we're going to die. It's hopeless. The enemy is great. There's only a few of us. It's over. Write your letters to your loved ones. Do what you need to do because we're going to die. And then all of a sudden, incredibly contrasting good news comes and there's great joy. Then you skip down to verse 15 and it says, Then they offered peace offerings to the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites were filled with joy. So, so major rescue can lead to joy. Major rescue can lead to joy. They weren't merely content upon being rescued or even happy. They were overjoyed. Here's another one. 1 Kings 1, 38 through 40. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and these other people, <laughs> and the uh, Pelethites went down and had, man, why are these people named so bizarre? Went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him out to Gion. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. It's anointing him king. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. I mean, that's quite a party. Imagine us being so joyful we cause an earthquake. It kind of splits it. What was David Solomon's, what was David Solomon's father's reign known for? Anybody know? War. He was a king of war. He brought peace, but his entire... In fact, David loved the Lord so much that he wanted to build a temple for God, and he wasn't allowed to. God said, I can't let you build the temple because there's too much blood on your hands. You were a king of war. And he wasn't putting him down for that. He's just saying, your son will build a temple. That means there's a time of peace coming. So what is this again? Rescue. Rescue. The people are celebrating because God has told them Solomon's going to bring in a different reign. No more war, no more fear, no more, more fear of dying and, and people attacking. There's going to be a long time of prosperity. So major life change to the positive can equal joy. A few more. Second Chronicles 31, Hezekiah sent to all of Israel and Judah. Boy, we have got to solve the dilemma of the demonic microphone. 2 Chronicles 31, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. There's great joy when something that was loved and lost is finally restored. Did you know they weren't celebrating the Passover for a while? They weren't celebrating. This is their biggest feast and it had gotten kind of worn out and it had kind of gotten glossed over and there had been worship of false gods and they've been sort of, I don't know, to, what can we relate it to? Commercialism, maybe, thrown in there. And all of a sudden, their big festival is just gone. They're not even celebrating it. And a godly king comes in, Hezekiah, and he says, you know what? We were meant for this. We were meant to worship the true God, so we're bringing this back. And when they brought it back, there was joy. Now, I know that's hard for us to relate to, you know, with Christmas being so laser-focused on Jesus as it is in our country. But actually, I think it's real easy, isn't it? It would be sort of like a, a godly president coming in and being, you know, Billy Graham basically and saying, you know what, enough with this nonsense. Christmas is about Jesus. We're going to abolish everything else and it's going to be all about the Lord. There would be great rejoicing when something is restored that is right. There was another king, and I don't even have this one in there, but there's another godly king named Josiah. And, it, and we found out that more than 100 years, the books of the law, the Torah, 
the Bible, basically, parts of the Old Testament were put away, and the people didn't even hear about God's word. And he was really convicted to search in the temple, and, and he had to go through all kinds of the archives, and he found it. It was lost. The word of God was lost for like 100 years. He brought it back, and guess what there was? Great rejoicing when people got back into God's word. Are you seeing a pattern here? You should be able to see how you can reset joy. It seems to be centered around someone in particular, and only one person. So there's great joy when something that was loved and lost is finally restored, as there would be around our land if ever we restored the godly principles this country was founded on. And a great start would be to reset Christmas back to all that it was intended to be. You see, because the opposite is true as well. When beauty and freedom and truth are taken away, joy goes right with it. It just fades. In the time of Christ, there was one job. Let's get back to the shepherds now. In the time of Christ, there was one job perhaps lower than all others. It was that of the shepherd. Their work was considered unclean. I never really knew this. I was studying it this week, and you know, you hear so much about, so many analogies about the good shepherd, Jesus is the good shepherd, and then we are the sheep. And, but you really study it, it was a bad job. It was almost the dirtiest, lowliest, most ill-thought-of job you could possibly have. In the Talmud, which is extra-biblical writings of the Jews, which is a collection of interpretations and insight from the rabbis, we read these words, no help is to be given to heathen or shepherds. Wow. So in order to understand how unusual it was to have the angels appear to these lowly shepherds, let's learn a bit about them. Just a couple things. You don't have to write them down. Just think about this with me for a moment. First of all, they're considered ceremonially unclean because of the nature of their work. They were unable to attend any religious services. And I find that ironic because most biblical scholars think that the time that, and, and, and guys, this might disappoint you, but we don't know that Jesus was born December 25th. <gasps> We don't really know that. We celebrated it December 25th, but when you think about the shepherds being out in the field and the time of the Passover and all these different things, it probably wasn't December 25th, which really doesn't matter. Don't let that get you all upset. What matters is that we're celebrating his birthday um, because the shepherds were out in the field, and these shepherds that were out in the field near Jerusalem, they weren't just watching and guarding over any old sheep. Anybody know what kind of sheep they were watching over? the sheep that were going to be used in the Passover, the best sheep there were. They were watching them and they were keeping them from the other sheep so the other sheep wouldn't bite them or fight or do anything. They didn't want them to get nicked or marred in any way. They wanted them to be perfect sheep. These are the sacrificial lambs that are going to be offered for all the families in Passover. But guess what? The shepherds can't participate. Doesn't that seem ironic? Their job is to watch the pure sheep and they don't get to be involved. The religious people get to be involved. The Pharisees get to be involved. Aren't you glad that Jesus sees it a different way? Who did he come to? We'll get to that in a moment. So they're isolated. They're out in the fields. They're forgotten because their flocks needed to move around to find new grass and fresh water. They never stayed in one place for very long. They were treated with contempt and mistrust, and they were suspected of stealing from others and would often confuse thine with mine. Their testimony was not even allowed in court. If you had something going on and, and you say, well, listen, I have some witnesses. These three shepherds saw it. didn't really matter. Oh, they're shepherds. Their word doesn't count. Look how lowly they're thought of. 
How unreliable. They were known to be brash and bold. Living out in the fields away from society made them unappealing to most people. Most of them had foul mouths and were ready to fight at the drop of a hat. That's shepherds. Prince William and Kate Middleton. Anybody follow them? I guess her last name wouldn't be Middleton anymore. What would it be? Prince William, what's his last name? Does anybody care? I don't either. Those two. They might, let's say they're expecting their first child because I think they're expecting their first child. Imagine if, if you will, that when their child's born, that instead of all the media attention, which you know they're going to get, and the birth announcements to the presidents and heads of state and other royalty, that the news of their birth was delivered only to the dock workers unloading cargo in the middle of the night. And that's it. No royalty, just skip them completely, and angels appear and go, here's what's about to happen, and they just give it to those guys. It's just about the closest I could think of is shepherds and dirty workers, and that's the way God thinks. So different than the way that we think, isn't it? It's basically what we're dealing with here. God entrusted the greatest message ever sent from heaven to a bunch of smelly shepherds. And actually, this isn't that unusual, is it? God has always worked wonders for the forgotten. You don't believe me? Just read. Read through Scripture. It's always the lowly. It's always the forgotten. For the despised, for the lowly. From the beginning of time on earth, Jesus came to those who felt horrible, who were humble. Matthew 9, 12 through 13 says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Actually, here's the Rob Singleton paraphrase. The healthy need a doctor too, don't they? Because those who spiritually think they're healthy are not healthy. They're just harder to reach because they think they're perfect. So Jesus came to those who have that one qualification that you've got to have, brokenness and a realization that you're not all of that. You can't find joy if you already think you're great. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This doesn't mean the real righteous. It means the self-righteous, those who think they are righteous. So Jesus reached out to sinners like Zacchaeus and Levi and prostitutes and the demon-possessed and strangers and Samaritans who were, who were ill thought of back then. He did in his ministry what the father did in a borrowed stable when the lowly shepherds looked at the Lord as the cattle were lowing. Mary captured this in her song. Mary actually wrote a song about that night, and you can find it in Luke 1.52 said, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. What do you think Mary was talking about? I mean, she was amazed herself when she's holding the Son of God, and who comes to see him? Who's the first visitors? Shepherds proclaiming it. I think she learned a little something about her baby shepherd son, learned a little something about God. God's not like what I thought. God didn't come the way I thought. Everything's upside down. Paul said it in his way, in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29, he said, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. Listen, let me put it my way. It doesn't say, now there were in the same region scribes keeping watch over their scrolls by night. I don't see that. And just outside the birthplace of the king of kings, there were CEOs keeping watch over their portfolios. Doesn't say that. Or lo, in the same meadows, there were movie stars keeping watch over their Oscars. 
or rock stars rearranging their Grammys, or Ivy Leaguers hanging their diplomas, or athletes polishing their Super Bowl rings. None of that. The Lord came to the lowly, to the most undeserving, to the neglected and marginalized in order to show his power. Because listen, does God get more glory when a superstar does something or when somebody so unlikely does something? What, what, what brings more glory to God? He loves using the lowly, the weak, the despised because he brings more, he gets more glory that way. If somebody that just seems to have everything going for them goes out and does something and God really is helping them, what, are their, what is the temptation for them to say anyway? Well, gang, the temptation is going to be for them to say, you know what, I, I probably did that myself because I really have a lot of talent. And God and I, well, we need each other and, and God doesn't want that. That's why it's harder for a rich man to come to the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. So God uses the lowly. The shepherds help us see that God has a message for sinners, just like me. Everybody matters to God. So joy comes to those who long for the Savior the most. Scripture, and we shared this last week, said, you will find the Lord if you seek him, those who seek him with all their heart. Not half-heartedly, not with some of your heart, but if you seek him with all your heart, you'll find him. That's a promise in Scripture. Why did joy come to the first, come first to the shepherds? Let's look at the criteria I was looking at before. Unexpected, because it was completely unexpected that angels, a host of angels from heaven, would come to the dirtiest, filthiest, lowest. So there's your unexpected category. It was unlikely because they were easily the least likely candidates, unworthy because society had put them down and told them over and over again, you can't even participate in church. We don't even want you in the temple because you're dirty and defiled. Jesus doesn't see it that way. So they were unworthy, unknown. They were nobodies, unequal, though they were probably saddest this time of year, not being able to participate with everybody else. Even though they were in charge of the very lambs that would be used, they couldn't participate. So the joy they would receive would far surpass the pain and loneliness of their entire lives. This, I think, is why God did it. So I think God went to the lowly, because their joy would be the greatest, and their praising of him would be the greatest. All gang, or even just one of those criteria are present, and the chance for joy in Christ exists.
Paul, the guy I just explained to you that was shipwrecked and beaten and stoned, said in Romans 8, 18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory we will receive later. If he can say that, it must be true, even for those that went through what they went through in Newton, Connecticut. If Paul can say that. Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, when? Right now, that's their big question. They'd like comfort now. When? How? I remember when I first heard this, I was a little kid, but it still stands true that the little three-letter word is a great acronym for a pathway to joy. So let's just look at it and close with that. Give you some practical things right here. The J in joy stands obviously for Jesus. Joy begins and ends with the Savior. He's like a, a joy magnet. And the closer you get to him, the greater your joy. How? Because he puts all things in perspective. Eternal perspective. When you're close to him, you long for heaven. You store up treasures in heaven. You tell others how they can live forever in heaven one day. But something else happens as well. This life and even the trials and pains begin to shrink by comparison because your focus changes. Centering your life around Jesus is the beginning of joy. Now, how can you do that practically? The very first week that we did Resetting Christmas, I gave you just one little something. I didn't want to give you a lot. I just wanted you to start with something real small. Here it is. Uversion.com. Did anybody take me up on this? Raise your hand if you did. As a family, go to uversion.com and there's an Advent thing that you can track. There's actually several of them now. The one we're kind of doing as a church is called Rediscovering Christmas. Start there. It'll help you refocus and reset this season around Jesus. That doesn't mean make, just because I've got him joy and that's the first letter, it sounds like I'm saying put Jesus number one. That won't do it, gang. Making Jesus the number one priority in your life doesn't work. Because that just means when you're done giving him the biggest chunk of time, you move to priority number two, and then you forget about priority number one, right? That's what doesn't work about putting Jesus in a list. You don't need to make him number one. That sounds weird for a pastor to say that, right? Don't make Jesus number one. Make Jesus the center of all you do. That way, when you go to work, he's at the center of how you do your job. That way, when you're talking to your neighbors, he's right there at the center. At home, with your family, he's right there in the center. Put him at the core of your life where everything revolves around it. That's all that'll work. That means when you're working on priority number two, three, four, five, and six, Jesus is still there. You don't put him on the shelf after you've given him the biggest chunk of time. So that's the most important thing. Joy comes first through Jesus Christ. The next is the letter O, and it represents others. I've never met a joyful person who put themselves before anybody else. Never. In fact, the movie this time of year that's real popular that, that sort of personifies that more than anything else is Scrooge, right? In fact, what's the name of that? Christmas Carol. You see that guy? He's so miserable. What does he do? Puts himself before anything and everyone. Even when he sees Tiny Tim and suffering people, he doesn't really care until something really scares him and gets a hold of his heart. And then, guess what? The very end of that, what does he find? Joy. So you can't put yourself first. You've got to put others first. I haven't met a lot of frustrated people who put themselves first. A lot of grumpy, dissatisfied people. No joyful people. And here's why. Our church is founded on two things. The Great Commandment and the Great Commission. 
The great commandment says what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why is that the great commandment? Why is that the most important commandment? Why is that the most powerful commandment? The reason it is, gang, because if you really love God that much, you wouldn't struggle with any other commandment, would you? They would just sort of fall in place. But if you're like the Pharisees, you try to memorize all the rules, but you really don't love God, you can't keep any of them. Can't even keep track of them. Can't even remember them. You know, Pharisees used to walk around with scrolls, little, little written scrolls on their forehead. Talk about ridiculous. It's not even a good fashion statement. And they would try to remember stuff by actually writing it on them or putting it on their forehead. That doesn't work. It's got to be in your heart. That's why that's first. But the second, and isn't that interesting? That's J for Jesus. But the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. There's the O. So if you just look at the great commandment, you can see this order that I'm talking about. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, how do I find joy? Where's me in this? Well, that's the why. Yourself. There is a time to focus on oneself and the pursuit of joy. It's just not the place to start. Gang, contentment's overrated. It really is. It's tied to merely the absence of pain and the presence of comfort. That's what I've figured out contentment is. When you're not hurting, when you're healthy, and you're sitting in your lazy boy, and you're watching football, and everything seems to be okay, and no one's bugging you, and you're comfortable. You can be content. That's overrated. That's as far as contentment goes. And happiness, too, is overrated because it depends strictly and solely upon what's happening, right? Happiness depends on happenings. If what's happening in your life is great, then you're happy. But everybody knows we live in a fallen world, so it's not going to be great all the time. If it goes down, your happiness goes down. It absolutely is a roller coaster ride tied to the happenings. Joy is different. Joy alone is tied to Jesus Christ, and he is unchanging and unwavering. That's why joy for the Apostle Paul can be constant. He can be dirt poor and joyful. He can be rich and joyful. He can be in prison and joyful. He can be free and joyful. It didn't matter. Joy is constant because it's based on Jesus Christ. Gang, this year, make it about Jesus. Gang, I love what God is doing already in the launch phase even of Impact Church. I want to remind you all that at this phase, it's so, so important that we all remember Worship Plus 2. I already see some new folks coming in, and we've got about half the church wearing red shirts, uh, which means they're getting plugged in. Worship Plus 2, I find, is a healthy level of involvement for volunteers. It means when the doors are open for right now, that's 10 o'clock on Sundays, that you're here to worship corporately. That's the worship part. Plus two means you are in a life group and you serve in some ministry. Now, you can start off serving anywhere. You can start off serving as a greeter. You can start off serving in setup or tear down, serving in children's. We need help in all of these areas. But eventually, we're going to start running our 301 class, which will help you discover how you're shaped. And then, even better, you'll be able to serve right in the area that God gifted you in. But don't, if you, if you find that God's leading you to impact church, don't wait too much longer to at least get at the level of worship plus two. That's a healthy place for you to be. It's a healthy place for you to find joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing at this church, Father. Lord, we pray that you help us find all the right leaders, Lord, as we, as we gear up for what we think is going to be more than a church, Lord, a movement. Uh, Father, people might be surprised to know that the word church 
It's not even in the Bible. It's a misinterpretation, Lord. It's really glacia, and it's really movement, God, gathering. And so where anybody is gathered in your name, that's the church. So, Lord, I pray that you would gather among us and unto us those that are fired up about glorifying you and this mission, Lord. Grow this, Lord, in a way that's so supernatural that the even secular people will look on and say, God's favor is upon that group. I pray this in Jesus' name and with great expectation. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.